Um, guess what our topic is tonight? Knowledge. <laughs> Statement number one. Here we go. We were on the way over here and I was thinking, why are we doing this? Um, we're not here to debate every line in this statement. We're not here to, um, to figure out how to argue this to the world. This is an exercise for us as believers to hear biblical explanations for uh, a very relevant reality. Our, the sexuality that, that God has given to humankind. And I was wondering on the way over here, when was the last time that we received a message, a positive message about sexuality from the church compared to the number of times we have heard statements about sexuality from our culture? We get them constantly from the world, don't we? And so I think it's good for us as believers to be reminded that this is good and this is true. And with all these things that are being thrown at you, it's good for us to have an anchor. And so um, I, I would not venture to say that the PCA at Interim Committee's report on human sexuality is infallible. It's not. But I think it's a really helpful place for us um, to, to examine biblical sexuality and to help us understand it and what I love about this report is that it is intentionally pastoral to help us figure out how do we understand. And even in some places, it helps us to communicate to the world around us who disagrees with us and who is in direct opposition to us on these issues. All right, so, uh, and, and I don't want to say that they're in direct opposition to us. They are in direct opposition to godliness on this. So, so that is why we're doing this. It's, it's, a hel it's helpful for us, and I think it's helpful for us to hear articulations of what is good um, in terms of sexuality, specifically today in relationship to marriage, because the definition of marriage uh, is even hard to pin down in American culture. What is marriage? Is it something that the church does? Is it something that the state does? Should it be something just the church does and the state shouldn't do? Who can get married? How many people can get married? And, and on and on and on. And, and even some questions these days, is it just for humans? And so um, those are the, the conversations, unfortunately, that um, we've been having. And I think, I hope this is a breath of fresh air for us as we look at this and are reminded. So let's look at statement one uh, before you. We affirm that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Now, if you remember back to the last couple weeks, this is loaded. There's lots behind this. It's not just an arbitrary picking that humans did at one point to say, let's just choose a man and woman and call that marriage. This is supported not just by these two proof texts and the Westminster Confession of Faith that are footnoted. It is supported by a large biblical narrative of who people are and what sexuality and what marriage are. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God. That alone, we could spend a whole night on talking about how that relates to um, what we've been told about sexuality from within and from without. Sexuality is, has served, um, has, people have tried to use it to serve many purposes, but when we understand it as a gift from God, we understand then we are to cherish it. And it is to be reserved for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And that Proverbs 5 uh, verse is worth noting, footnote 4. Proverbs 5 verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain 
be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Um, these verses, um, perhaps not the uh, exhaustive biblical comments on sex before marriage, but this is speaking about sexuality being enjoyed with your wife and uh, the exclusivity uh, that is to be, um, with which sex is to be cherished. Uh, marriage was instituted by God, and uh, the statement gives us three purposes. First of all, marriage was instituted by God, one, for the mutual help and blessing of husband and wife. Uh, and, and we see that all the way back in Genesis. It was not good for man to be alone, and so God brought a helper to him. Uh, and we see in uh, many passages in the New Testament how they, it is supposed to be a mutually giving, self-giving relationship between a husband and a wife. So it is for mutual help and blessing of husband and wife, and it is a blessed thing to find a spouse. And it is for procreation and the raising together of godly children. And um, that's, that's one of the, the values of marriage that, that cannot, you, you cannot have that same covenant, exclusive, safe relationship in which to raise children. There, there's nothing that compares with that, that blessing of marriage. God designed that to be a place of nurture and a place where children are brought into the world and where children are raised uh, in the truth and in, in the church. And marriage is also for preventing sexual immorality. Now this is a... Um, this kind of argument can can be misused very easily. It, it, lots of these arguments can be misused easily, which is why I think it's important for us to also um, get to the nevertheless statements on the next paragraph before we uh, try to dissect this too much, but to prevent sexual immorality. And we see cases where Paul encourages believers that if they cannot, um, if they're going to burn with passion, it's better for them to marry. And it is also to, um, the, the man's body is for the woman, the woman's body is for the man, so that sexual um, desires can be uh, met, and so that the, um, the other person's body is for the, the spouse, and in that it helps prevent um, sexual immorality in some very, um, not just practical ways, but in some practical ways. Um, Marriage is also a God-ordained picture of the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church. We spent time on this as we were looking, I believe, at point three uh, from our excursus on the biblical foundations for sexuality. Now, the differentiated relationship between Christ and the church, how God and humankind are united in this uh, covenant salvation as man and woman are united in uh, the marriage covenant and all other forms of sexual intimacy. Here is where um, uh, perhaps I think we would it, we could slow down and spend time on this. We could also uh, just say many amens in our hearts as we hear this. Um, all other forms of sexual intimacy, including all forms of lust and same-sex sexual activity of any kind, are sinful. That statement is helpful for Christians to know and to hear. Sexuality is not 
a game to be toyed with. Sexuality is not to be taken lightly. These are sinful. And I, I really think, um, now there's some great, great passages here. Let's look at the Westminster Larger Catechism footnote, footnote number 17. What sins are forbidden in the seventh commandment? This is the, thou shalt not commit adultery. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks. Wait, was this written before the internet? This is a heart problem for humankind. Let's keep going. Wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. That is a brothel. Stew is a brothel, not something to eat. And resorting to them. Entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. So this is saying that to watch a sexually um, scandalous movie, I'm not saying a straight-up pornographic film, a scandalous movie would be prohibited as a breaking of the Seventh Commandment, along with adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and on and on. And... um, because every single one of these things, even a, a passing, uh, indulging in a lustful thought or look, all this is corrupting the goodness of the marriage between a man and a woman and is undermining marriage and God's design for marriage in one way or another. All right, so if you feel badly enough about yourself, let's read the next paragraph. Nevertheless, we do not believe that sexual intimacy in marriage automatically eliminates unwanted sexual desires. So off the bat, they're saying, all right, we're not saying that if you have sexual problems, if you go get into a heterosexual marriage, your problems will be fixed. That is not what is being said, nor that all sex within marriage is sinless. And the the, the quote there from the Confession of Faith 6.5 is simply saying that we're going to continue in our corrupt nature until uh, we rise uh, in our new resurrection bodies with with Christ. Uh, We all stand in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether married or not. Moreover, sexual immorality is not an unpardonable sin. There is no sin so small it does not deserve damnation, and no sin so big it cannot be forgiven. There is no hope Excuse me, there is hope. (laughs) There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. And I hope that's where we go back and lean when we realize that 
every single one of us is guilty at some point through these descriptions of biblical sexuality and prohibitions. Um, every single one of these things is forgivable in the blood of Christ. So, I'd like to hear what are some big collisions happening in your mind between what you have been hearing from uh, the world um, versus what we have just read, which we believe to be uh, biblically solid explanations of marriage. Go ahead. I think at least something personally that I wrestle with consistently is bridging or at least allowing a bridge between secular music and like my marriage and knowing that the rapper or let's say it's rap in this case is talking about a sinful relationship me thinking that because I'm married and envisioning my wife that that is an okay act to listen to that music and so it's like can I reconcile that and is that a conviction thing or Am I allowing this sin to creep into my life? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I, I don't have a straightforward answer. It's 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 a tough question. Um, the Apostle Paul didn't answer it either. You just said work out your salvation, your own salvation, yeah. with fear and trembling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so many times, and I'm, this is not at all a condemnation. This is uh, an encouragement. Uh, the fact that you're asking this question is proof that what you're asking is not how sinful can I be and still get into heaven. What you're asking is what is the holiness that, that God is calling me to? How holy can I be in order to be faithful uh, and obedient uh, in my life? So as you're thinking through that, you know, you're thinking through it in those terms, and that'll help you make a decision. I think there's definitely some songs that I have just said this is not yeah yeah and and most of those songs um i think i I, truly i I have not spent much time in the in the rap music but every now and then i've heard those songs at the weddings like my goodness like this is not at all viewing sexuality as self-giving but as taking Mm -hmm. and and so those songs must be excluded what you got uh, I think I was going to say was the the breakdown uh, from the Westminster Confession of what is not permissible. I think maybe except like two or three of them, the world would say is of course permissible. Hmm. If um, what are some of those in particular? Uh, I think any ones that are more uh, involved with violent behavior, I think the world would agree is bad. But I think the majority of everything else, the world would be like, no, it's okay. It's you think it's okay kind of a deal. Yeah. Um, where, mm-hmm. you know, for us, it, it, it calls out a lot of fear. And it, I'm wondering when you're reading through it, my main thought was, well, thank the Lord for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, good. And then after it was more like thankfulness for that much boundary mm-hmm. and that much guidance. Um, and it also does really show just how, how separate from the world our views are on this. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. yeah, it feels like that's an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? To to let the world see what holy living produces. Yeah, and and without rehashing our conversation last week or the week before, um, we've seen the disaster that has come from this culture's sexual morality, 
and for them to be able to see a godly, a godliness, and a chaste living within God's design could could be the thing that many are longing to see. I don't want to necessarily uh, derail. I think this is really helpful, but um, uh, your your question was where have we seen the kind of the world's definition of uh, kind of come against this, um, had this and clash uh, against this statement. Um, I was wondering if anyone else um, saw this statement and said that clashes with what I've heard from the church before. Um, because I know for a fact that I did not uh, hear um, either from uh, the pulpit, from young persons groups or whatever, or even in the home, really, that sexuality is a gift from God until I started, like, premarital counseling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I went most of my, like, growing up life, like, sex is something to avoid even Mm -hmm. thinking about. Um, So this is worded in a way that this is, sex is supposed to be a joy and it's a gift from God. And I think that's, um, it's, it's a, it's a blessing, and I'm glad that this is here now, but um, I don't think that's necessarily mm-hmm. something that's everyone heard. Yeah. Anybody, I mean, by a show of hands, anybody also understand where, where she's coming from? <laughs> the only part of the statement that probably does get talked about a lot is that marriage is for having kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, or that, that sex is for having kids, and that's the only thing that... Yeah. Like I think that that point gets driven home very well. Yeah. And everything else is not usually. Yeah. So, um, without um, trying to drag our childhood churches through the mud, (laughs) what? Why? Why do you think that that would be a natural tendency of Christian homes over the last and churches over the last hundred years? To to make those those to make certain points and not make other points that maybe points that shouldn't have been made and they didn't make points that should have been made. Why? Any thoughts as to why it, it, that has happened? We're dealing with sinful people, right? Just too uncomfortable to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's easier. It's easier just to say, "Don't do that." Yeah. <laughs> and and up until maybe forty years ago, when the legal right and the moral right were still kind of going the same direction. Where now you have a legal right that is 180 degrees from moral right, uh, you you just can't take a back seat to this anymore. Yeah, yeah. I feel like fathers might have just had guilt that mm. they were dealing with. Mm. That they were like, man, if I address this to my kids, mm. there's a lot that's going to come out personally mm. that hasn't. Mm. And so, I mean, I, I don't have kids yet, obviously. But one day, like, I have to be real with her before I'm real with my kid about stuff. And I feel like maybe just all the stuff that's happened, fathers weren't straight up about Mm -hmm. certain things. And not everybody. No, I I think it absolutely has served as a cover-up for certain sins. Yeah. People are like, well, let's just, let's let's identify other people's sins and not talk about our own. Mm -hmm. And this has led to some very unhealthy um, worlds in which we think about sexuality very very specifically wrong ways. So you could probably the same thing is probably with alcohol as well. 
where it's easier just to say that all of it's a sin. Don't even worry about it. And that can kind of cover up with any other struggles that people have with it. Yeah. As opposed to kind of being more open. I mean, it's a, not an equivalent uh, yeah. comparison, but I think it's similar that if you're comfortable talking about one, you may need to work to be comfortable talking about the other. Yeah. Well, perhaps with both the alcohol example and Amy's example, um, parents and leadership are thinking, all right, well, if we can just pretend like it's it's not happening and we can hope that they also are pretending with us like it's not happening and they actually don't engage in this, then what we'll do is give them instruction when they get close. So when they turn 21, we'll talk about healthy drinking. When they're in pre-marriage counseling, we'll talk about healthy sexuality because it's not been a part of their lives until then. And I think it's because of what you said. It's hard to talk. How do you engage a 10-year-old child, 13-year-old child in discussions of their sexuality or even younger? I think you've got to start younger in, in many places. I mean, yeah, you've got to start very young. I'm not putting an, an age on it because I don't, want to, I don't want that to come out as some sort of canon here. But, um, yeah. To add, Kyle, you're saying like, the school started in fifth grade. And like some of these kids aren't being talked to about it. It's it's crazy yeah. that this young I'm getting told about sexuality, but I don't have like the Christian perspective or what the Bible yeah. says about it as loud as this voice that I heard when yeah. I was so young. Yeah, yeah. Did you Amy, did you go through purity that whole thing? Oh yeah, that was the whole. It was a, it was the, a big deal. When pure, I was, what was it called? The purity, purity culture. Yeah. Purity culture was that. So you didn't hear it as part of that. I heard. What did you hear? So. um... My, my own personal experience, I got it actually starting in fifth grade when I was 10. We went through um, a little curriculum, mother-daughter thing. Did you get um, a ring? Pardon? Did you get a ring? I did not get a ring, actually. Um, but they didn't say it was about sex. They said, this is how you should dress. This is how you should hold yourself so that you don't tempt men. Um, and then they left it at that. Um, so kind of growing up, I knew that like there was a certain way I was supposed to be so that there was no temptation, but it was kind of like just left hanging open like that. And there wasn't a sense of how, what, how it's supposed to loop around. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine the burden that puts on young women. On the flip side, um, I went through. I didn't read the original Every Man's Battle. Um, with my dad, I read the uh, kid's version of Every Young Man's Battle. Um, and we read a different book that pointed out um, a lot of problems with that approach came down to um, uh, assuming there was no way that men were going to rise above their temptations and desires. And so that heaped on even more pressure to women. Mm-hmm. Um, and also was very, I mean, in a lot of ways, debilitating to men. Like, men are sitting here going, I don't want to be this, but this book and my church tells me I'm a monster. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I mean, that is the exact same anti-gospel that, that we're accusing other people of. But I, when, when they say, well, I just can't change. This is who I am. Um, if, if we tell them, hey, actually, no, you can, by the strength of the Spirit, overcome sin and temptation and fight against it, um, that's what young boys should have been told. It's like, you can overcome this by the, the strength of the Spirit. And, um, and I think about those two things that y'all just said and, and how that sets, uh, if, if that's widespread, that sets up a whole generation for 
difficulty and confusion and an straight up unbiblical thinking about sexuality because um, it's no longer a gift and maybe that's maybe that's really the motivation of those who led this like we really want them to understand this as a gift to be enjoyed in marriage and it is sexuality is a gift from God but they didn't know how to talk about it beforehand and they didn't know how to guide you to that place um, so that's kind of my assessment of it I don't know maybe that's not accurate or maybe it's not helpful you have a thought Um, in terms of the church's influence I think the holiness movement in in that it affected different denominations was primarily focused on how to live a godly life but they tended to emphasize what you are not to do Mm -hmm. um, and, and had a list and that was how holiness was expressed you don't do yeah, this, this, yeah. and this, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I, I'm thinking too. Um, the church understood a teenage mind and and what is talked about in the locker room at school, and so they were trying to play the role of the catcher and the rye to prevent them from falling off the cliff. And so it was all don't, mm-hmm. don't, don't, because mm-hmm. that's what they felt like people were experiencing in their world and the only way to be a Christian is to stop that influence. Some of it, I think some of it was quite positive. I, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't become a Christian until I was 35 and I actually thank God for some of this stuff because, uh, just, uh, things like, um, like taking my daughter on dates, right? So that she knew the affections of her father. And she didn't go looking for the affections of somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And to, it, it held me to a higher standard so that um, she wouldn't settle for a man who wasn't worthy of her affections and who wasn't a godly man. It, it's not a guarantee, right, right. right? It's not a guarantee, but it all, there, were, there was a lot of good things that came out of that, I think, that... Uh, it certainly helped me. It gave me a framework to act, and how did I act with my boys and uh, and my you know my only daughter? Um, and I, you know, I I appreciate it. Now, there's been a lot of recriminations on that whole purity movement. Now, uh, you know, I have a friend who walked away from the Lord because of the quote damage that it did to her. And I don't you know I don't know what her specific situation was, but. Um, it, uh, overall, I, I, I felt like it was a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Am I putting you on the spot? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think, though, if, if you're able to express the positive elements of it, um, you are doing it in context of a loving father who did this thoughtfully with his daughter. And I don't think, maybe that wasn't always the case. Maybe. And maybe there were many cases like yours where it was helpful. Um, so it's what do you, what do you do with a curriculum like that? You know, um, I and I don't have an answer. Uh, I do think it's important for us as as a church plant here on a Sunday night. There are no young children here um, for a reason because it's really hard to have children out in the evening, um, and <laughs> and and we need to think um, as we start to have our own curriculum in our Sunday schools and uh, youth programs and thinking years down the road. Um, many of you will be those helping design the curriculum, even teaching the curriculum. We need to make sure that we're thoughtful about this. 
uh, let's when we wrap up this study, that doesn't mean the discussions are done. Let's keep going. Let's keep talking about the goodness um, that God has woven into um, our being as human beings, as our as sexual beings. Um, not above all other identities, but as a part of how God has created humankind. Unless there are some, um, there's a burning itch to make another comment on this. I'd like us to do a quick um, read of statement two. Yes. Thank you for comment. Yeah. Uh, um, so in uh, the officer training, we just went through like, why do we care about confessions and all of that? And one of the objections to confessions is that they are uh, superseding or going beyond the Bible. Mm. Um, and like in what we read so far, I was like, okay, like I see what they're saying. Like, no, they're not. Um, that was a lot of enumeration <laughs> of the seventh commandment. In, mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure I would have included all of those, um, especially as we get down to uh, what was it? Prohibiting of lawful, dispensing with unlawful marriages, entangling vows of single life, you need undue uh, delay of marriage. Like, why is that in there? Who's doing, who's making those actions? Is like, uh, are they saying the church should not prohibit lawful and dispense with unlawful, and that's a violation of the seventh commandment? Are they saying, like, a person, whether it's like, uh, a father should not step in and prevent a lawful wed between his daughter and him. Like, it, that seems out of place to me. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for the context uh, specifically that they had in mind here. I would, have, I would assume some of them, uh, if you're prohibiting a lawful uh, marriage, that would be in reference to the justices who, for some reason, are disallowing a marriage that is biblical and good. Um, I suppose I would think of um, early America, an example might be interracial marriages, perfectly lawful yet prohibited in many places. That would be, uh, that would be breaking the seventh commandment um, because it is a violation of biblical sexuality and, the, and, and marriage, the marriage union. Um, I don't have necessarily, and that's just one example that, that just popped into my mind. I don't have an answer for all the context or who all uh, is in mind here. Um, I do have resources, so we can look at that together at some point. I'm sure we'll get into it another next year. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I have the same question. All right. Let's look at statement two. Statement two, the image of God. This one... I anticipate we'll see much less conversation. Uh, there are a few things I'd like to highlight, but I think it's good. Uh, let's let's go ahead and read the affirmations, first paragraph, uh, and then the, um, what do you call the second half if it's not an affirmation? The nevertheless. The nevertheless. <laughs> uh, the denials, perhaps? All right. Uh, Affirmations. We affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. Likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body and the call to glorify God with our bodies. As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. And while situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, 
Men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. We'll pause there. Um, noting that the very next sentence is going to talk about the compassionate uh, approach that we ought to take as we're dealing with people who are confused. Uh, I think what I'd like for us to emphasize is how the goodness of the human body is a part of our call to glorify God with our bodies. And so 1 Corinthians 6, you know these famous verses. I just put um, verses 19 and 20 down here. Do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is not a command uh, in a vacuum. That is a command in response to what God has done. And it is a gift to be able to use your body to his glory. And there's so many things, and not just sexuality, not just specific sins of transgenderism or whatever. Um, so many ways that we try or trying to use our bodies to glorify ourselves. And we're not seeing it as a way to glorify God. And uh, we're seeing our body as something for us to l be lords over rather than viewing them as an instrument that we are to use to work to the glory of the Creator. And so there's a difference to approach um, with the goal of glorifying God versus the goal of of um, how do I how do I put it? Um, being the the lords of our own bodies. That of course does not um, preclude any. I, words are not coming to me very well. Right? It's, it's, this is a very simple word: self control. <laughs> that's that's a thing. Yeah, it's it's a compound word. This does not preclude self control over our bodies. Of course, we we're stewards of our bodies, and that serves to glorify God. And so, I think it's important for us to operate according to God's design in our bodies. Now, that does not mean that that um, men have to wear lumberjack shirts. In that women have to wear uh, ankle-length skirts. Like, all right. So those are. There's a difference between um, godly um, manhood and womanhood versus cultural manhood and womanhood. And don't ask me to differentiate that tonight. Um, but you get the point. Um, hopefully, let's look at the neverthelesses. Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. Paul, in Galatians 3.1, is ministering to the Galatians who have been confused. And in 2 Timothy 2, uh, he talks about what an elder is supposed to... Uh, qualifications for elder here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, so, therefore, we must engage compassionately with those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. We recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. I think that is crucial. To understand that when we're dealing with people who are confused about their gender, we're dealing with people who are living in the effects of the fall. You and I, not a single one of us, was born perfect without any corruptions from the fall. 
We all have inclinations and longings and tendencies within us that are maybe unique to us or unique to a small population of us, which are sinful. And that does not mean that we are irredeemable. And it does not mean that we must give in to those sins. What it means is we need people who will encourage us and patiently endure with us and compassionately minister to us. And that's exactly what people need from us as they are wrestling against things that feel like they are integral to their being. It feels like an attack on on a person's core at times. And and perhaps it is if if, if their identity is not truly found in Christ. Maybe that is what they've wrapped themselves in. And so we can encourage them to let go of all definitions of themselves as central apart from Christ. Let go of all, none of those make you who you are. And then rebuild yourself as a Christian with all these other things a part of that, but not the core of who you are. Uh, And that then leads you to uh, be able to drive out sin. Uh, And that does not take a month That does not take a year. That does not take 10 years. That takes a lifetime. So sometimes our endurance with each other on these issues needs to be lifelong endurance. Um, We recognize, um, that's that second statement, we recognize the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. Moreover, some persons in rare instances... Um, this is speaking of the physical exceptions. Uh, they may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. Yes, what do you got? Um, I am very encouraged by the inclusion of this statement um, in the Nevertheless. I have heard firsthand, or if not firsthand because it was a news story, um, heard it with my own ears, people who would discount that statement. Which, um, which one in particular? The, uh, some persons in rare instances may uh, possess an objective medical condition mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. their anatomical development. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is, I think as we're fighting over this in the church, in the culture, between all of the above, uh, there is a tendency to want to simplify things that resist simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, uh, to make an analogy, uh, when we're talking about, so if you're in biology 101 and you get to what is a species, um, you're going to have 10 biologists with 10 different answers and they're all going to be justifying it. Um, and the horse doesn't care. <laughs> um, and you'll have some people who are like, well, because a horse and a donkey can have um, a viable uh, a mule, then horses and donkeys are the same species. So uh, I, I only bring that up to say, um, especially as we start to... Uh, get into applications of this, we would be very good to reserve judgment as long as possible. Um, Because uh, if you start trying to codify uh, 
maleness or femaleness by law, it's going to get very messy, um, and you're going to hurt a lot more people than you're going to help in that way. Um, I mean, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. I think the the fact that there are um, such cases, you know, actually this this statement um, talks about. Um, P- potential definition of gender in, I think, three different ways. Sense of gender identity, so this internal psychological sense of gender identity. Um, this, there's a biological gender, and then there, there's a genetic chromosomal sex. Right. So um, the, the reality is there are cases today where these don't always line up. And the question is, how do we endure with people who may not, uh, who have not been born according to what we would call, um, they, they've been born into a sinful world, I'll put it that way, where things are broken, things are out of line. How do you endure with people like this? How do you love them? How do you welcome them? Endure sounds negative. That's not what I'm trying to say. How, how do you show, um, how do you minister compassionately? Um, because every single one of us, Again, as as I briefly mentioned, has been born. Something is broken in every one of us, and uh, in some ways, it manifests itself in a. Um, it just manifests itself in different ways. Just a minute. See if anybody else has comments. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the challenges of the church is to provide good clarity on what it means to have our identity being in Christ because that's such an abstract concept mm. it, it, if that's what you intended by it'll take a lifetime to figure that out um, identity is a re- it's a bigger issue in our culture more than just the sexual identity um, mm. I was watching a, a fitness video and the guy who just seemed like a healthy person says my identity is in fitness. And I'd never hmm. heard that place as an identity before. And so what does identity mean and how do you take this abstract concept of identity in Christ and make that under, uh, understandable, mm-hmm. um, something that we really can live in and delight in mm-hmm. because our identity will be um, absorbed in other kind of interests just naturally. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a big term right yeah. now, and, and I don't yeah. think it's and, and what's, uh, easy to express. Yeah, and, and what we are so good at doing as people is taking these things that we can use as good, worshipful gifts, and we turn them into the gods that define us. And so fitness can be a good gift. And it is a good gift, but when it becomes the all-consuming god, that's that's problematic. So, yeah, your, your point is well taken. What What then is that um, encouragement to live uh, with the identity of a Christian, with identity in Christ. What does that look like? And, and that's uh, beyond the scope of tonight. That's a good point. Paul says, my life is hidden with Christ in God in Colossians 3. And go, yeah. I wonder what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, it's clear that that's a biblical principle. Yeah, but it's, yeah. yeah, it, it can be it can be foggy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last comment. Last call. Double last call. (laughs) Uh, Just to uh, 
put a little bow on that uh, nevertheless discussion. I'm reminded of Jesus asking his disciples about the man blind from birth, mm-hmm. uh, who sinned, mm-hmm. his man or his parents. Um, and uh, the the answer was uh, neither. He was uh, part of God's purpose was that he was blind so that uh, Jesus could show his glory. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's taking something that's like, we look at that and we go like, this is a hard thing uh, to deal with, blindness. Um, and it's something that most people would look at and go like, why would God do this? And I think we approach this in the same way with some of these uh, gender identity questions. Why would God mm-hmm. allow someone mm-hmm. to have this confusion? Why wouldn't mm-hmm. he just make it simple? Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful to understand that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And because we don't know, mm-hmm. we need to come into these situations mm-hmm. with that humility mm-hmm. to trust mm-hmm. that God has a purpose yeah. through all of this. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. All right. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your patience and how while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We thank you for clarity in your word and we thank you that you have given to many eyes to see that. And we pray that we would be humbled by the fact that we are able to understand your word by your spirit's help. Would that not drive us to pride? Would it not drive us uh, to feeling like we are some kind of superior? Uh, Would it lead us to extend kindness and patience to others? Would it encourage us to live lives of consistency and integrity before you and before a watching world? so that they too might begin to grasp the glorious truths of Jesus and how he has taken those who are dead and breathed life into them by your spirit. So would you help us uh, to be compassionate, to be patient, to be understanding, to never waver from the truth, and to remember uh, that your grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.